When I was a kid in my parents' driveway, I played a lot of basketball games. One on none, which essentially was me against myself, I guess. And I used to always play U of L versus UK. And I and and this was back during the time, and some of you will remember some of these players. When I played, of course, I always represented U of L very well, uh, as is appropriate, of course. And I was always Purvis Ellison or LeBradford Smith or. Milt Wagner or somebody like that back in the mid-80s. I was those guys. And, of course, when I played against Kentucky in the driveway, the only player they had that was uh, worthy uh, to, to be an opponent, or at least maybe unworthy, was a guy named Rob Locke. Maybe you remember Rob Locke from way, way back. He wasn't very good. And so he was always the guy that represented Kentucky. He couldn't dribble, couldn't shoot, couldn't do anything right. And Louisville always won in my driveway. I have no idea why they didn't call me yesterday. <laughs> I could have been to Lexington pretty quickly. I mean, they could have gotten me there and, and Purvis Ellison would have taken over the game. And uh, unfortunately, it was, it was not meant to be yesterday. And so anyway, I, I'm always, uh, I guess, a little bit uh, amused at arch-rival kind of games. Of course, in our state, it's UofL, UK, and others. It may be Duke, North Carolina, or, or Michigan, Ohio State, but ours, of course, is UofL, UK. And, and if you're from here, now if you're not from here, it doesn't even make any difference to you, but if you're from here, you know you've got to pick a side. And we always laugh at those people who, who say, you know, I, I, I'll pull for Kentucky, uh, you know, and, and I won't pull against Louisville unless they're playing Kentucky. Right. I don't believe it for a second. I, you know, I'm, a, I'm a Louisville fan, but I, you know, I pull for Kentucky when they're not playing you know, against Louisville. Come on. We know you've picked a side. You, we know, and it's okay to admit it, you pull against your arch rival all the time. I've told you the story before of my uncle, who is a rabid University of Louisville fan. Probably one of the biggest and maybe most obnoxious Louisville fans you could ever run into. He's okay with that, by the way. He would be fine if he were sitting here if I admitted that on his behalf. But I remember when the Soviet national team came to Rupp Arena to play Kentucky years and years ago. And my uncle told me, he said, I had to turn off the television. He said, I couldn't pull for Kentucky and I couldn't pull for the Soviets. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> so he just turned it off. And the arch rival was playing another bigger arch rival. And so it's amusing to see all of the banter back and forth. And maybe some of you got really excited or, or really uh, happy yesterday. I don't know. But, but you have to choose one of the sides. You, you don't sit on the fence when you live in Kentucky between U of L. And UK, you don't sit on the fence if you're from here. And so, I know many of you are out of God's will and pulling for Kentucky. And and yesterday was was a victory that somehow convinced you that you're in the right. And Satan has blinded you. And I am praying that your eyes are open. But but anyway, it, it it's interesting how arch rivals create that in us for sure. There's a set of arch rivals that's that we'll see today in the scripture that I, I want you to to turn with me if you would to Matthew chapter 15. We're going to see Jesus against his arch rivals, and what we'll see as a result of that are some arch rivals, if you will, in the game of life. I had originally planned for those that were here last week to preach a message about Christmas again, and, and I worked on that Monday and Tuesday, and quite honestly, when we got back in town late Friday night and I sat down yesterday afternoon to 
finish work on that sermon, just really believe that God was moving in a different direction. And so uh, if you were anticipating a sermon about Christmas, I apologize. You'll have to wait till next year. Um, but, but I believe there's a word from God for us today. And so I was led to Matthew 15, and I believe a word for me, and hopefully a word for you as well. Matthew chapter 15, we're going to work through verse by verse uh, the first nine verses, and then I want to give you some application. You'll see on your on your bulletin insert there, the scripture is listed, and then you'll see an outline. There's also a code there if you, if you have a smartphone or a tablet and you'd like to pull up the scripture in the same outline, then you can scan that code and hopefully everything will work well for that. But let's look, Matthew chapter 15, verse 1, we'll see these, these are travels. Look at verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came from Jerusalem and they asked. Now stop there for just a second. If you are familiar in any way with the New Testament, you'll know that the Pharisees were, were the guys who tried to get Jesus to mess up. They tried to catch Him in something that would pit Him against the Old Testament law. If you don't know anything about the New Testament, then I've just told you the Pharisees were these guys who were experts in the law of God as it's written in the Old Testament. They really were trying to be as godly as they knew how. The Pharisees get a bad reputation because we look at them and we say, well, they were just cold-hearted, awful people. Jesus had some pretty strong words, as we'll see in just a moment, for these guys. But we, we need to understand that first, that the Pharisees, the scribes, these teachers of the law, were folks who thought they had it right. They were trying to be who they thought God wanted them to be. And so every effort that they made was meant to try to get them closer to God, closer to what the law actually meant. The problem was that they got so blinded by their religion and the religiosity that they missed out on God's Messiah. They missed the whole point of what God had said to them in the Old Testament. And so they're coming to Jesus and they're asking him another question. This isn't the first time this has happened. They had asked him back in Matthew chapter 12, why do your disciples do certain things on the Sabbath? Why, why do you, Jesus, heal on the Sabbath day? You're supposed to do nothing at all. What they had done is taken God's laws and added some things on top of it to make sure that nobody broke God's laws. And unfortunately, they're asking questions based upon things that weren't necessarily in God's law, but on things they had imposed on God's law. So they come to Jesus and they ask, verse 2, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? And here's what they're, they're saying they're breaking. For they don't wash their hands when they eat. Now, there's some phrases in there that are important to understand. First of all, this tradition of the elders. Uh, we think elders and maybe we think older people, maybe we think leaders in the church, whatever it may be. But this really is not just about some older folks. This isn't about leadership in the synagogue or the temple at that time. This was about the tradition that had been handed down to them by faithful Jews for generation after generation after generation. And so what you have here is the Pharisees saying, Jesus, we've got a question about why your disciples don't do what has been done for generation after generation. I mean, this is just what we do. This is, this is what we do before we eat. We, we wash our hands in a certain way. Now, understand that the tradition of hand washing was meant to keep their food from being made ceremonially unclean, and therefore when they ingested it would make them ceremonial, ceremonial unclean. Now, let me give you a little bit of background real quick. If you've ever read through the Old Testament law... And you've gotten to the parts in, in, in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers where you're thinking, why in the world do they have so many regulations? 
you can't do this or you're defiled, you're impure and you have to go and wash or you have to be outside the camp for seven days or whatever it may be. Maybe you're, you're wondering, why, why was hand washing such a big deal? I mean, I get the fact that you want to have clean hands when you eat. You don't want dirty hands because they make your food dirty and that might make you sick. That's not what the Pharisees are talking about. They're not worried about whether or not the disciples get sick because their hands are dirty when they eat food. They're worried about whether or not the disciples are following the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament. Now, what we see way back in the Old Testament is that the priests were to go before God and do their ministry, their service on behalf of the people before God. And before they did that, they were to wash their hands. And this was a washing by pouring over their hands up to their wrists so they would ceremonially, in a way before God, be clean so that when they presented themselves to God, there was nothing about them that they had gone about the wrong way. And so this was a ritual for them. This wasn't about, are your hands clean? This was about, have you done things the right way? But what they had done is they had taken what was applied only to the priests in the Old Testament. They had applied it to everybody. And they had said, no matter what you do, you've got to make sure to wash your hands. Just like the priest when he's going before God, you've got to do that before you eat your food in a certain way, or you're going to make your food ceremonially unclean, and therefore you will be ritually Unclean, and therefore not worthy to eat, not worthy to do anything. You see how the Pharisees had taken God's law, which was applied to the priests, and then magnified it, multiplied it, and applied it to everybody. The importance of being ritually clean to them was paramount. Nothing more important. And they thought that Jesus and His disciples were out of line. So they question Him, why do, why do your disciples do this. They break the tradition of the elders. They don't wash their hands before they eat. They don't do it the right way. Verse 3, he answered them. Now this is, this is great because Jesus is not going to get into an argument. You understand these guys were teachers of the law. They were lawyers. They knew how to argue. They knew how to make a point, how to make a case. Jesus is not going to get into an argument with them, though he would have won. He's not going to get on their level. He answered them. We're really not really answering them. And why do you break God's commandment? Because of your tradition. Isn't it great? Jesus is so wise. So incredibly sharp. And when we think of Jesus as this passive, meek, mild-mannered guy who walked around with his head down, kind of shuffling his feet. That's not the view that Scripture gives us of Jesus. He wasn't thumping his chest, look at me. He didn't have swagger. That wasn't what Jesus was about. What he was about, though, was the truth of God's Word. And guess what? The Pharisees question him, and he says in response, you're really not sure who you're dealing with, are you? You you want to accuse my disciples of doing something against God's law? Hold on just a second. Let's turn the mirror on you, he says. Why do you break God's command? Because of your tradition. Essentially, as the Scripture says, get the log out of your own eye before you want to talk about the speck in somebody else's eye. They have added to God's Word, and they have made what they have said equal to what God has said. They have made it to surpass what God has said. God said the priest should wash his hands before going before God and doing his service on behalf of the people. They said everybody should do that. That's not what God's Word had said. But what they had done is they had taken God's Word, and they had taken what they said... And made them equal, and in fact made what they said sort of sit on top of God's Word, and accused everybody of breaking God's law because they didn't do what the Pharisees told them to do. And they stood on, well, this is the way that it's been done for centuries. 
It's got to be right. It's the way we've always done it. You ever heard that? Certainly not in church. It's the way that we've always done it. You're doing something different. We've never done it that way before. That can't be right because it's different. Jesus says, look, you got it all wrong. You're adding to and surpassing God's Word with your own opinions. Scripture for them was no longer the ultimate authority. Understand that. When we talk about the arch rivals, as we'll see in just a minute, many of us have fallen into the trap of Scripture not being the ultimate authority anymore in our lives. It's what we feel, it's what we think, it's, it's society, whatever it may be. But, but in many cases, there are lots of us, even those in church, who have allowed something else to be the ultimate authority. Now, we see this in lots of different religions today. We see it outside of Christianity. One example would be the Mormons, the Church of the Latter-day Saints. They have taken the writings of Joseph Smith and elevated them to equal status with the, the Scripture. You, you know, the, the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. They have elevated something else besides Scripture to, to be equal with and surpassing God's Word. Now, we Christians are not off the hook when it comes to this. Uh, in, in Catholicism, the idea of papal infallibility that came back in the 1800s, that when he is speaking out of his official seat, the Pope cannot be wrong. Now that is something incredible. Or the idea that church councils, their decisions are infallible. We have seen in Christianity the elevation of something, the word of a man, the word of a council, be equal with God's word. Now, before we start blasting our Catholic friends, let's turn the mirror on ourselves as well. Don't we, even as Baptists or, or Protestants, don't we sometimes think that the way that we do certain things, whether it's music, or the way that we dress, or the way that we act in church, or the order of our service, cannot be changed. It must not be changed. Why? Because that's the way that it's always been. That's the way that we do things. Now, I'm, I'm fine with expressions of faith that are different from one another. No problem about that. I'm fine with a, a taste in music that may not be my own or your own. I'm fine with that. But when we get to the point where we say, no, 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 no. I, I understand what God's Word says, but you've got to understand this. That's the way we do it. Do you see how we have counted on the tradition, if you will, of the elders? Jesus has a major problem with that, as, way, as well we should also. He says, why do you break God's command because of your tradition? And then he gives them an example in verse 4. For God said, honor your father and mother. They would have known this, one of the commandments. And, he, and also God said, the one who speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. Part of the extension of that. But you say, right, so there's, there's God's law. Here's what they do instead. But you say, whoever tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me, is a gift committed to the temple. Now, let me explain that real quick. What they would do is they would make these vows. and say, I'm going to give so much money to the temple and, and look at me. If you remember back in, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount talks about those who love to see everybody, love to everybody see them give. They love everybody to watch them pray and look at what I can do. So they would make these incredible vows and I'm going to give this much money and this much of my possessions. And then their parents got sick. Then their parents became invalid and could not go out anymore. And instead of fulfilling their responsibility to their families, 
which, of course, was, was honor your father and mother according to God's law, they would say, well, I've already promised that to the temple. And whatever you might have received from me, I know you're not going to get it, but just be blessed that I gave it to God. Do you see the, the sappy spirituality that really comes from all of that? Oh, well, Mom, uh, I know that you're hurting. I, I know you, you need a place to live and you need to eat in order to survive, but I gave that money to the church. Jesus is saying, hold on just a second. Do you honestly believe that God would rather you, in public and to get attention, give this money to the temple rather than take care of your own parents? But what you're doing, Pharisees, he says, is that exact thing. You've made these vows and you've said those are binding and so you've broken God's law for the sake of your own tradition. And he says he does not have to honor his father and mother. That means Jesus is saying, look, because you say this money goes to the temple, you're off the hook from honoring your father and mother. Jesus doesn't quite understand their logic. He says, in this way, you have revoked God's word because of your tradition. They made vows that became more important to them than doing God's word. Them being seen and being considered religious was more important to them than being obedient to God. And then verses 7 through 9, Jesus brings it home for them. Hypocrites, <laughs> with an exclamation point, forceful, one word calling them out. The word hypocrite would have immediately said to them, a person with a mask as an actor on a stage. They were pretending to be something that they weren't. They were hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you. When he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. This would have struck the Pharisees right between the eyes. They knew Isaiah's prophecies. They never thought it applied to them. They would have never in a million years assumed that Isaiah was writing about them was prophesying that one day, or that Jesus would read into and say, look, you are exactly the kind of people Isaiah was talking about. He said, you're hypocrites. You're just actors on a stage. Your words don't match your hearts. And Jesus knew it even if nobody else did. Now that's kind of scary to me. I don't know about you. But you know as well as I do, we can put on a pretty good show here at church. We can come, we can smile, and boy, during that handshaking time, we can glad hand. And, and, and we, we may no more feel what we're expressing. <laughs> it's amazing to me, and, I, and I, let me tell you this, I can do the same thing. I mean, I can stand up here each week and preach to you and smile and make you laugh and talk about UK, UVL, and all that stuff, and, and not be walking with God. I mean, it, 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 it can be that way. Jesus calling them out and saying, look... You want to make everybody think you're so religious and you're so faithful, but I know your hearts. Hypocrites, he says. Your heart is far from me. Your religious activity, you worship me in vain. Your religious activity is empty and it's useless. You might as well just stop, he says. Just stop. It, 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 quit. What you're doing is pointless, he tells them. You've made your own thoughts, your, your own teachings, your own religious activities more important than the Scripture. They're in a very dangerous place. And either they don't know it, 
or they know it and don't care, or probably, more accurately, they think they're right. Two arch-rivals presented here, actually, I guess, a set of two. Jesus against the Pharisees, but, but more, I think, appropriate for us today. More specific, in fact, for us. Just like that rivalry between UofL UK, these arch-rivals we see in the Scripture are appropriate for us to consider today. Two arch-rivals, if you will, in the game of life. And it is the choice between these two that you must and I must make today. You can either love religion or you can love Jesus. You can either love religion or you can love Jesus. Great lesson in Matthew chapter 15, not just so we can trash talk the Pharisees after Jesus wins in blowout fashion in Matthew chapter 15 verses 1 through 9, but so that we can consider which side of this arch rivalry we find ourselves today. You can either love religion or love Jesus. That's a choice that I want to present to you today and have you truly and honestly evaluate where is your heart right now? For some, you immediately say, well, I love Jesus. I hope that as we look at these starting lineups, if you will, that we'll see and maybe evaluate and God will speak to us through this application. Starting lineups for each team, as I look at the Scripture and see what Jesus here is talking about and and consider what else He said in other passages, some starting lineups that we see in this game. First, there's dead faith versus living faith. None of us would say, well, I have dead faith. It means nothing to me. But when you look at what Jesus is talking about to these Pharisees, to these folks who had elevated their traditions, their, their own thoughts, whatever it may be, above the Scripture, He basically calls them out for having dead faith. It means nothing. In a sense, they don't know why they're doing what they're doing. You ever felt that way? I don't know if you've ever felt that way about what you do for Jesus or what you do for the church, whatever it may be. Why am I doing this? Well, I'm not really sure, but I, I kind of think that's just what I'm supposed to do. Jesus wasn't a do-it-just-because-you're-supposed-to-do-it kind of guy. That's dead faith. He wanted them to have living faith. He, he didn't want them to experience no real meaning. He didn't want their heart, their mind, their emotions to be untouched. That's not what He had called them to. It's not what He's called us to. There, there are lots of folks who claim to be Christians, you know them as well as I do, who in a sense are just going through the motions and have no real living faith in Jesus Christ. They simply take up their spot each week, perhaps in the church. They go through the motions of spiritual life, and yet their faith is dead. On the contrary, Jesus wants us to have living faith, the arch rival of dead faith, living faith. As Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, he wanted to experience the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. New life. He didn't just want to go through the motions of being a good Jewish person or even a good temple leader, and in our case, just to be thought of as being a good Christian or church member. He wanted living faith, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that changed His life, and that's what Jesus offers us today. Not everything being perfect. There's not a person here who can claim that just because you know Jesus, you've been made perfect. 
First John tells us that if anybody claims to be without sin, he's a liar. <laughs> All of us have sinned. But we can be forgiven and we can be made new. We can be made free and, and living life to its fullest extent in this sinful world. Living faith means there's joy in your worship. Not just words moving past your lips in a song. Joy. I wonder how many of us today came with an expectation, I'm going to worship Jesus today with the church. That's the kind of living faith that the Lord wants us to have. A new outlook on life, truly, truly alive. Chuck Swindoll, one of my favorite preachers, put it this way. He said, Tradition is the living faith of those now dead. That faith, those truths passed on. Solid biblical tradition. But he said, traditionalism is the dead faith of those now living. There's a big difference. Dead faith versus living faith. Secondly, you have your performance versus His performance. In this starting lineup, evaluating whether or not we are in love with religion or we are in love with Jesus, you have your performance versus his performance. Again, in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, writing from prison to his friends at this church in Philippi, he tells them, I've got every reason to take credit for all the good that's in my life. I've got every reason to count on myself as earning favor with God. And he lists all these things in the first several verses of Philippians chapter 3. He tells them how great of a Jewish person he's been. And not only that, but he comes from the right tribe. He, he's a Pharisee, meaning he is an expert in the law. And as far as it's concerned about what he thought about the church of Jesus Christ during the time, he was a persecutor of those people, which would have earned him some serious points in the Jewish community. And he thought, originally at least, would have earned him some points with God. But what he says is that I've done everything right, at least as far as I've been told. I've checked off all the boxes as far as being a good Jewish person. Everything, it seems, is in line. But what he comes to realize and comes to say in Philippians 3 is that it's all a big heap of garbage compared to what he really needs, and that is to know Christ Jesus, his Lord. It's a big pile of garbage, stinking, rotting garbage. Paul says your performance means nothing. If anybody's performance should have meant something, it should have been Paul. He did everything right. And yet he still says, all that's garbage compared to what I really need. And that's to count on the performance of Jesus Christ. So Paul, after trying hard on his own, settled on one thing that he needed. And that's to know Jesus. Earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul had written to the Corinthians and he said, Jesus was made sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. His performance is the only thing that could remove God's wrath from being on us and offer us salvation and forgiveness. That's it. Try all day long to, to see if your performance can get you anywhere with God. And unfortunately, what you'll find in the Scripture is even if you check off all the boxes and do all the right things and you have perfect gold star attendance in Sunday school and church for 50 years, the Bible still tells us that our best efforts are just like a pile of dirty rags to the Lord. It means nothing apart from Jesus Christ. It's His performance and His alone that gets us anywhere with God. If you're in love with religion... 
and maybe you don't even realize it, then it's going to be your performance, how much you can do. And God, look at me. And church, look at what I can do. And aren't I great? God, don't you now love me because of all that? Which leads to the next one, and that is earning God's love or responding to God's love. You can either try to earn God's love or you can simply respond to it. If you're of the mindset that I can earn God's love, well, if I do this, then God will be okay with me. If I, then He. If I, then He. If I only would do this. Well, I feel so guilty. I haven't been in church in three weeks. I guess if I go, then I guess God will be okay with me. I feel a little less guilty because I went to church. Let me tell you, I'd love for you to be at church. I really do. It's, I really do. I'm glad you're here. And I hope you understand I'm not being facetious. But if you're coming to church to earn God's love, stay home. Stay home and receive His love. Stay home and read the Scripture about God's love. Stay home and see if for one day, if God doesn't love you in spite of the fact that you didn't come to church. And for some, you say, well, I guess I'm off the hook. I don't have to come anymore. Good. Now, that's where we get to the next part, and that's to respond to God's love. Don't try to earn it, but respond to it. The Bible tells us that we love because He first loved us. So anything we do in response is simply because He has loved us first. Because because God loves me, I love Him. Because God loves me, I, I love other people. Because God loves me, I serve, I give, I pray, I get involved with the church, I sing, I obey Him. Because God loves me, not in order so that God will love me. You may not realize you're in love with religion this morning, but if you're doing all those things so that God will love you, then you're in love with religion and not truly understanding the love of Jesus Christ. The problem with religion comes in in the next part is that you have a moving target versus solid rock. The tradition of the elders was added to over a period of many years. It was changing. There was something added to it, taken away from it. It was a moving target. And only the Pharisees knew where the target was, and they were the ones who told everybody, do this, this, and this, and then you'll hit our target. Religion is a moving target. In every era, in every time period, in every church, there's something different that you must do in order to fit in with the church. It's a moving target. If, if maybe, maybe over time you've seen things shift, and it once was, as you look around this morning, you see folks dressed very casually. And you remember times when all the men wore a suit and tie, sometimes three-piece suit and tie. And now you look around and you say, boy, how times have changed. And for some, that drives you crazy. Oh, I don't know about it. I'm not so sure that that's right. And I understand that. Boy, I have some things like that myself. I totally get it. But do you realize that's just a moving target? Do you realize that when, when the apostles began the church back in Acts chapter 2, I doubt very seriously that they were wearing anything but tunics and robes and things like that that were just typical for poor Jewish people to wear during the time. They probably weren't in a three-piece suit and tie. Probably not. They just simply wore whatever was at the time. Therefore, what we don't see in the New Testament is if you're going to go to worship with the church, you must be dressed in this, 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 and this. I heard a sad joke one time about an 
old man who came into the church, and he'd been forever since he'd been there, and he didn't really have anything that was that great to wear. He was fairly poor, and so he just showed up in his overalls and his cowboy boots, and they were a little grass-stained from the way he was working. His hands were dirty because he was a working man, and he came into the church, and he sat in the back, and folks kind of looked at him funny. Weren't sure exactly what he was up to, and he certainly didn't dress and look like them. And the pastor at the end of the service stood in the back and told the man on his way out, he said, Sir, he said, if, if you want to come back, he said, I suggest that you pray and ask God what you should wear to our church next week. The old man next week walked in wearing the same thing. The pastor at the end of the service said, Sir, didn't I tell you to pray and ask God what you should wear to our church? And he said, I did, and I prayed, and I asked God, what should I wear to that church? And he said, I have no idea. I've never been there. <laughs> Humorous, but sad, isn't it? They had elevated their way of thinking above really what God had said in the Scripture. What really matters is, is that they worship Jesus. Religion's always a moving target. But the solid rock is Jesus Himself. We sang about it. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. Everything else is sinking sand. It's going to move under your feet. Jesus Christ is the only thing that is solid rock. He is the living, breathing Word of God who validated the Scripture, the inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God, written and preserved for us throughout the generations so that we could know God, so that we could understand what He has done, what He wants for us, and so that we could have a firm foundation on Jesus and the Scripture. He's a solid rock for us. If you're in love with religion, you're going to be frustrated because it's a moving target. But if you love Jesus, it's solid ground to stand on. Also, Jesus would make it clear in Matthew chapter 11 that these arch rivals also include fatigue versus rest. Matthew chapter 11 Verses 9 through 11, Jesus tells the people, If any of you are weary and heavy laden, that means if you're worn out, beaten down, and feel like the weight of the world is on top of your shoulders because of all the religious activities everybody else is telling you you should do in order to gain favor with God, if that's you, he says, come to me. Come to Jesus to get rest for your souls, he says, because my burden is easy. Everything that I'm carrying around is light, and I'll give it to you. It's fatigue versus rest. Maybe some of you today are just worn out from trying to jump through all the religious hoops you think you have to do in order to get to God. And church is just a chore for you. And praying, it just feels like everything hits the ceiling and comes right back down. And you open the Scripture, and it doesn't say a word. Might as well be blank pages. But you do it. Just going to grind my way through it. It's wearing me out. I don't really care for it. I wish I didn't have to do it, but I assume that's what I have to do in order to get to God, so I'll do those things. And you're worn out. If you're worn out, there's a good reason. Because religion will wear you out. It will, every single time. Just trying to jump through all the hoops and check off all the boxes, because it's a moving target, you'll never get them all, and it's going to wear you out. Jesus instead offers rest. You say, good, because I need a nap this afternoon. Maybe it'll be physical rest for you, but you know what's more important? It's going to be rest for your soul. Rest where you really need it. And Jesus just says, stop trying so hard. I've done it all. I've covered all the bases for you. Just stop. 
Psalm chapter 46, it's written for us, Be still. Stop trying so hard. Just know that He is God. The next in the starting lineup is hurt versus healing. The Pharisees were tools of hurt for a lot of people. Jesus would talk about them in Matthew 23. And he told the people, don't, don't, don't listen to them anymore. It's time for you to stop following people who just tie up heavy loads and then won't lift a finger to help you carry them. And the heavy load was more religion on top of religion, on top of rules, on top of things you had to do. And Jesus says, look, all that's doing is hurting you. And in fact, let me say this, religion won't heal the hurt that's in you. Do you realize that? We do so many, we get so many people who are so hurt by life. I don't take any of it lightly. I look around this morning, and some of you I know your stories, and some of you I don't. But you know as well as I do that life hurts. You've been through some things you don't even know about yet, how they affect you, but you know they're just boiling inside of you. And, you, and you've seen some hurt that lingers, and over time you can't get rid of it. And you think, what is wrong with me? So you go to church more. You say, well, they got an evening service on Sunday. Wednesday night I'll show up for that, and maybe that will heal me. Or I'm just going to pray more. You know, some of those guys way back when would get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and pray for 25 hours a day. Maybe I need to do that. Maybe I just need to read the Bible through this week. All I'm going to do is just read the Bible 24 hours a day. I'll just keep doing this and this and this. And you say, I'm not really getting healed. Nothing's working. Religion will never heal you. Going to church more, just reading your Bible more, praying more, giving more, serving more, singing louder, whatever it may be. That stuff in and of itself is not going to heal you. Not apart from Jesus Christ. Only when He is the center of your life can those things be used by Him to heal you. And Jesus Himself is the only one who can bring healing to you. Through the Holy Spirit that He sent to live inside all believers, only He can heal you. We look for it from other people, from our activities, from the church, from from things like alcohol or pornography or whatever it may be. We look to be healed and to numb our pain. And Jesus the whole time just simply holds out His nail-scarred hands and says, I'm the only one. Look here, He says, and be healed. And then finally, what's already filled in for you. Ultimately, in religion versus Jesus, you have two quotes from from Jesus Himself, starting lineup of, I never knew you, versus well done. The Pharisees were trying so hard, doing so many different things, imposing all of that on everybody they could find, and ultimately what they would discover is that Jesus says, you can do all that stuff and you might think it's great, but apart from me, I never knew you. There's a lot of folks who do a lot of religious things, but not from a love for Jesus. Religion will never get you into heaven. Religion never will. Just doing religious things won't get you into heaven. 
Jesus told them, your heart is far from me, your worship is meaningless. But only those who love Jesus as a response to His love for them will be received by Him both now and for all eternity. And He'll say, well done. You love me in response. That was your spiritual act of worship, to simply love Jesus in response to His worship. I came across an article I'd like to close with this week, written by Billy Graham's grandson, a guy named Tullian Chavadin, who's a pastor down in South Florida. All of this may lead you to, to this particular question that he asks and then answers in this article. It's really good. I hope you'll listen. The title of the article is, Does Grace Make Us Lazy? The Gospel declares that because of Christ's finished work for us, we already have all of the justification, approval, security, love, worth, meaning, and rescue we long for and look for in a thousand different people and places smaller than Jesus. The Gospel announces that God doesn't relate to us based on our accomplishments for Jesus, but on Jesus' accomplishment for us. Because Jesus came to secure for us what we could never secure for ourselves, life doesn't have to be a tireless effort to establish ourselves, justify ourselves, and validate ourselves. He came to rescue us from the slavish need to be right, rewarded, regarded, and respected. The Gospel announces that it's not on me to ensure that the ultimate verdict on my life is pass and not fail. This means we don't have to transform the world in order to have our lives matter. We don't have to build a big church to secure our worth. We don't have to be successful to justify our existence. Because Jesus was strong for you, you're free to be weak. Because Jesus was someone, you're free to be no one. Because Jesus was extraordinary, you're free to be ordinary. Because Jesus succeeded for you, you're free to fail. Because Jesus won for you, you're free to lose. But hold on, he says, wait a minute. Doesn't this unconditional declaration generate apathy? Doesn't it create an I-don't-care posture toward life? If Jesus paid it all, if it's truly finished, if my value, worth, security, freedom, justification, and so on is forever fixed, then why do anything? Doesn't grace undercut ambition? Doesn't the gospel weaken effort? Understandable questions, he says. But the gospel actually empowers risk-taking effort and neighbor-embracing love. The thing that prevents us from taking great risks is the fear that if we don't succeed, we'll lose out on something we need in order to be happy. So we live life playing our cards close to the chest. We do this relationally, vocationally, and spiritually. We measure our investments carefully because we need a return. We're afraid to give because it might not work out and we need it to work out. But because everything we need in Christ we already possess, we can take great risks, push harder, go farther, and leave it all on the field without fear. We can invest with reckless abandon because we don't need to ensure a return of success, love, meaning, validation, and approval. We can invest freely and forcefully because we've been freely and forcefully invested in. The fear of not knowing whether I'll get a return is replaced by the freedom of knowing we already have everything. Because I already possess everything in Christ, I'm now free to do everything for you without needing you to do anything for me. 
I can now actively spend my life giving instead of taking, going to the back instead of getting to the front, sacrificing myself for others instead of sacrificing others for myself. The gospel alone liberates you to live a life of scandalous generosity, unrestrained sacrifice, uncommon valor, and unbounded courage. When you don't have anything to lose, you discover something wonderful. You're free to take great risks without fear or reservation. This is the difference between approaching all of life from salvation and approaching all of life for salvation. It's the difference between approaching life from our acceptance and not for our acceptance. From love and not for love. And it closes with this. So what are you going to do now that you don't have to do anything? Once your heart is gripped by the reality that you don't need to do anything for Jesus, you'll discover that you want to do everything for Him. My prayer for you and for me this morning is that we'll simply fall in love with Jesus. That we'll receive by grace, through faith, the free gift offered to us of new life. No more counting on religion. No more falling in love with that. But Jesus, teach me to love you. And maybe, just maybe, in so doing, you'll be set free. I believe you will. And your life will be changed, and you'll no longer count on those old things and that dead faith. But you'll be made alive in Christ, both for now and forever. Let's pray together. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, let me... Let me ask you what decision you need to make this morning. For some, you don't know Jesus. You've never received His gift of salvation through faith. And today, that's the decision. Say yes, Jesus, I, I believe. And in believing, I repent of my sin and I trust you for salvation. It's as simple as talking to the Lord right now and telling Him that. No magic words. Or maybe for others, you say, you know, I, I believe in Jesus. I really do. I've given my life to Him. I've received His salvation. But I tell you what, right now, if I'm honest, I'm in love more with religion than I am with Jesus. He's not the center of my life. And I'm worn out. My faith is dead. I'm just going through the motions. My worship means nothing. Maybe you just say, Jesus, teach me to love you. Really, teach me to love you. Whatever it means. Lord Jesus, teach us to love you. Thank you for loving us so that we could love you. We pray in Jesus' name.